Hey, this is Brad. We're off today, but please enjoy this encore presentation of the Bradcast. You know, I'm not here to analyze the Republican Party. All I say is to my Republican friends, and I do have them, take back your party. <laughs> Good luck with that, Nancy. Can't blame her for trying. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Mm, it is isn't. it I'm isn't. so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on fine internet affiliates such as the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst others. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around. Swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of The Bradcast. We will talk about Democrats and Republicans um, in a little bit with my guest coming up, Adam Green of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. And I... I actually, I'm sort of shocked and embarrassed we've never had him on the show, Desi. I know. What's up with that? I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to blame you for not booking him. There you go. How's that? Uh, yeah, so he'll, he will join us shortly uh, to discuss uh, the bad faith, bad, very bad faith negotiations that are underway by Republicans in the, uh, in the House and Senate with Democrats and what Democrats should do, uh, do about it. Is it time to cut bait? As they say, we will discuss that shortly. But in the meantime, oh, you're going to like this. A lot of red meat here in the uh, A block, Desi Doyen. Everyone is flipping, it seems. Uh, No, not flipping out. Flipping. Flipping against their people that they know and prosecutions. And, well, this this part is it's I got to I got to admit it's getting kind of fun here. Uh, I'm glad something is. I, I, hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't planned on starting with this, but this just in from CNN, as they say, federal authorities investigating alleged sex trafficking by GOP congressman and Donald Trump toady Matt Gates have secured the cooperation of the congressman's ex-girlfriend, according oh. to people familiar with the matter. A woman scorned and all of that, I guess. The woman, a former Capitol Hill staffer, 
is seen as as a critical witness, and she has been linked to Gates as far back as the summer of 2017, a period of time that has emerged as a key window of scrutiny for investigators. News of the woman's willingness to talk which has not been previously reported, comes just days after the Justice Department formally entered a uh, entered into a plea agreement with Joel Greenberg, one-time close friend of Gates, whose entanglement with young women first drew the congressman into investigators onto investigators' radar. According to CNN, information from Greenberg in the lead-up to his plea agreement has already helped investigators further their scrutiny of the Republican congressman from Florida as he uh, worked towards a plea deal with federal prosecutors in recent months. Greenberg told investigators that Gates and at least two other men had sexual contact with a 17 year old girl. Gates has repeatedly denied that he ever had sex with a minor or that he has ever paid for sex. There are other new signs of investigative activity as well in this, uh, according to CNN. One person familiar with the matter said that federal investigators have sought information from new witnesses as recently as this month, including communications and payments from a group of men that included Gates and Greenberg. Decisions on whether to charge Gates have uh, yet to be made and will fall to prosecutors in the public integrity section of the Justice Department. That decision, however, is likely to take some time, according to CNN, as the Justice Department considers whether there is sufficient evidence for an indictment. Well, there might be more evidence now, now that the girlfriend is cooperating. Yeah, uh, and but it'll still take a little while, so be prepared for that. See there, there you there you go again. <laughs> just trying to say, don't get too excited, right. don't get too worked up, don't expect anything anytime. Not Nothing gonna happen is tomorrow. ever going to work out well. We should just be negative about it. That's what you. <laughs> no, just trying to manage you. expectations. I know you are. I know you are. And uh, speaking of which, uh, get ready to manage uh, these expectations um, in regards to um, Apprentice Gates's idol. Donald Trump. So a day or two ago, we were covering New York Attorney General Letitia James's announcement that her civil investigation into Donald Trump and the Trump Organization's alleged bank and tax fraud had moved from a civil probe in her office into a criminal probe and that her office had joined the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance which had already had a criminal grand jury probe underway into some of the very same things. We spoke with uh, former assistant U.S. attorney Randall Eliason that day to understand the differences between civil and criminal probes. The biggest difference, uh, as he noted, was that you know civil charges result in fines and fees, while in criminal indictments, people actually go to prison if found guilty. Manage your expectations, Desi Doyen. <laughs> uh, anyway, we discussed how and why a civil investigation can become a criminal investigation and much more along those lines. If you missed it, good conversation. I think it was helpful and enlightening, at least to me. Uh, you can, of course, download it for free at bradblog.com. But we also discussed the recent attention that Trump's longtime chief financial officer, Alan Weiselberg was getting from prosecutors, particularly after his former daughter-in-law, woman scorned again, was said to be participating 
with and cooperating with prosecutors, sharing documents with them and pointing out things like her former husband, uh, Alan Weiselberg's son, who was also a Trump Organization employee, had been paid in part with uh, fancy, you know, free fancy apartments in Manhattan and school tuition for their kids at fancy private schools, etc. So I asked uh, Eliason that day why prosecutors would be looking into that stuff, why that uh, you know, getting free apartments from Trump and, you know, payment for school tuition, why that would be a crime per se. And he explained it this way. It sounds like, uh, and considering that we know Vance, or we think mm-hmm. <laughs> that Vance has been looking at tax crimes in general or potential tax crimes, uh, as well as potential bank fraud mm-hmm. uh, issues, that sounds to me like part of a tax investigation, like maybe those payments are a way to avoid uh, you know, they're, they're, they're paying the tuition under the table or something like that so the employee doesn't show any taxable income or maybe mm-hmm. the corporation gets to write it off as a deduction to the school or something. Uh, and, and that, you know, that, it sounds like a tax thing <laughs> with, so, without knowing more about it, but that would be my guess. So one, one potential uh, direction here would be the, the Weisselbergs themselves might be in trouble because they didn't report that as income, and therefore if they're in trouble tax-wise, Maybe they'll be uh, willing to sing on on their boss. Does that sound exactly. pl- plausible? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a lot of speculation. I'm sure you've seen it in the re- last couple of weeks about whether Weisselberg will flip. Right. You know, they say they're bringing a lot of pressure on him, and of course, like you said, he knows where all the bodies are buried. So that would be a pretty significant development. So that was part of my conversation with former Assistant U.S. Attorney Randall Eliason. Uh, where we were speculating that, well, we might know that they are getting closer to Trump himself if and when we saw Weiselberg either begin to cooperate or we saw saw charges coming down against him, etc. Well, uh, as he said, uh, you know, that would be a big deal if it happened. Well, not long after we got off air that same day, CNN again broke some news precisely along those lines. The New York Attorney General's office, according to CNN that night, has uh, been criminally, criminally investigating Alan Weiselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, for months over, yes, tax issues. After CNN first reported the news on Wednesday evening, the New York Times later confirmed it with similar reporting, citing sources who said that the office of Letitia James had sent a letter to the Trump Organization back in January, notifying it that her office had opened a criminal investigation related to Weiselberg, the uh, top finance guy. At this huge organization, the reported investigation involving Weiselberg by James's office, as both CNN and The Times noted, adds additional pressure onto Trump's longtime trusted financial officer who has worked for uh, former uh, President Donald Trump's family business for decades now, beginning under Trump's father, Fred. That long ago, that's how long he's been there. That was why uh, Randall and I in that conversation were referencing the fact that uh, Alan Weiselberg knows where all the bodies are buried. Well, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance uh, has reportedly been seeking to secure his um, Weiselberg's cooperation for months in its own criminal inquiry into Trump and his company uh, related to potential bank and tax fraud. This was the first confirmation that the 
uh, state attorney general was working to do so as well. So it's got to be kind of getting kind of hot in Trump Tower, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, I right think around so. now. Uh, both investigations, uh, both Vance's and Letitia James, have touched on uh, benefits that Trump's company provided to some of its executives, including potential tuition payments to a swanky Manhattan private school for Weiselberg's grandchildren. That school has now been reportedly subpoenaed for information on those tuition payments. Prosecutors at the district attorney's office in Manhattan, according to the New York Times, have been looking into whether the family paid taxes on those benefits, just as Eliason was suggesting on this show before the news later broke, which also uh, reportedly those benefits also reportedly included the luxury lodgings for Weiselberg's son, Barry. All uh, all of this in hopes of flipping Alan Weiselberg to flip, you know, against his boss, the Donald. And then last night, also on CNN, Jennifer Weiselberg, the former daughter-in-law of Alan Weiselberg, Jennifer was previously married to his son, Barry. She said uh, that she believes the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, who she has, of course, known for years when he was her father-in-law, that he will, he will, in fact, flip as investigators dig deeper into his personal and financial dealings. When asked about the matter on Thursday by CNN anchor Aaron Burnett, Jennifer Weiselberg was quite certain about her answer. Donald Trump and the Trump Organization are one and the same. Um, Alan and Donald may look different, but they are not different inside. Um, there is no difference. The power that they've been, they were handed by um, when he became president, I was there. I was sitting in the presidential box during the parade with Ivanka and Jared and Vanessa and her children <laughs> as the red carpet was rolled out for him to walk into the White House. It's palpable. The power is palpable. And I thought, this is so dangerous. I cannot believe they're giving this much power to and control to someone that is uh, doing it for their own benefit. It just felt dangerous. Uh, it's something that is hard to put into words. It's um, the amount of power given to a president. I just think it's irresponsible and to give um, somebody who is self-serving and narcissistic that much power when it's inevitably always to benefit themselves. Will Alan Weisselberg flip on Trump? Yes. Wow. I mean, no, no, no hesitation yes. at all with your answer there. So there you go. Yeah, she was pretty blunt. <laughs> Making no bones about it. Yeah. Alan Weisselberg will flip, says... Jennifer Weiselberg, who I guess we can call the estranged former. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's probably not talking with her right point. now. Uh, but she was married to Alan's son, Barry, for 14 years and uh, has been cooperating with the investigators. She explained to Burnett that she had provided documents in the probe that show the former president had paid uh, for the tuition for one of the couple's children at this Manhattan private school. Uh, the same school, by the way, that Trump's son, Barron, had previously attended. She told the Wall Street Journal that she and her ex-husband had never paid their children's tuition when it reported last week that prosecutors have subpoenaed the Manhattan private school for records related to um, 
uh, Weiselberg's grandchildren. Weiselberg said during the interview on Thursday, I have records of Donald Trump paying for one of my children's tuition at her private school and specifically saying in terms of control that they could not go to another. She said it looks like it was compensation tax benefits for the Trump organization or for Donald Trump himself. It's basically all about tax strategies, she added, echoing pretty much what Eliason told us. In this case, Trump might have been able to write off some of those expenses uh, that he should instead have paid employment taxes on. And in the case of Jennifer Weiselberg and her former husband, Barry, well, he could now be squeezed as well because he was unlikely to have paid taxes on that stuff, his apartments, his kids tuition and so forth, which in fact, amounted to income. So he can be squeezed to turn on his father, and now his father can be squeezed to turn on Trump. That's a whole lot of squeezing going on. uh, It is, isn't it? It is kind of fun, isn't it? According to Wall Street Journal, more than half a million dollars of the students' uh, tuition has had been paid for with checks either signed by Weiselberg, Alan Weiselberg, or by Donald Trump himself. Which uh, Jen Jennifer Weiselberg reportedly told the Wall Street Journal uh, that she understood was part of Barry's compensation package for his work at the Trump Organization. She said there is nothing legal going on there, (laughs) referring to the uh, Trump Organization. But it could get even more fun, according to Trump's personal lawyer and fixer this week. Michael Cohn said that he believed the former president would flip himself on everyone, including his own family members, as New York investigators tightened the screws on the Trump organization. He was speaking with MSNBC's Joy Reid, and Cohn said he believed that while uh, legal scholars and the public wondered whether investigators might flip people close to Trump, such as his former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and the Trump Organization CFO, Alan Weiselberg, it would be Trump himself who would ultimately be the one to switch sides, according to Michael Cohen. I think Donald Trump is going to flip on all of them, including his children. I really believe that Donald Trump cares for only himself, and he realizes that his goose is cooked. So when he turns around and he gets questioned, it wasn't me. It was it was Alan. Wow. It was my accountant. It was it was the appraiser. It's never Donald. Oh man. Wow. I mean man. the idea that he would flip on his own kids is is shocking even to me, but I guess I It was Eric. It was uh, Don Jr. Wow. It a was Ivanka. Well, it wasn't Ivanka. She, he wouldn't go that far. Well, who knows? Who knows? He might flip on Jared. Go, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll definitely throw Jared under the bus. And he's skinny enough that he would fit right <laughs> under that. But Cone uh, has a lot of inside skinny on 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 all of this stuff. I mean, he was worked for Trump as his personal lawyer for, you know, well over a decade. But also, of course, in 2018, he pleaded guilty to several felonies, including wire fraud, tax evasion, campaign finance violations regarding payments to Stormy Daniels that he had that he said he carried out at Trump's direction. And he's been cooperating with prosecutors in several investigations, has met more than once this year alone with the Manhattan D.A. Cyrus Vance. So he knows stuff not only from his working at the business, but from also being invest, uh, uh, you know, uh, interviewed by all of these prosecutors. He knows what they are looking at. 
After CNN reported this week that the uh, state AG's investigation had become a, uh, a criminal investigation, Cohn tweeted out an edited image, an ed- edited image of Trump behind bars, adding, quote, Soon enough, Donald and associates will be held responsible for their actions. Don't listen to that part, Desi. That'll <laughs> just, uh, you, your, your brain the springs will come. Uh, anyway, Trump, for his part, released a lengthy statement that same day attacking the investigations as partisan and politically motivated. At 909 words, this statement was apparently the longest that he has released since being barred from social media and leaving office. He said, this is something this is something that happens in failed third world countries, not the United States. He lamented, if you can run for a prosecutor's office pledging to take out your enemies and be elected to that job by partisan voters. Partisan voters, Des. <laughs> partisan voters who wish to enact a political retribution, then we are no longer a free constitutional democracy, Trump said. Trump, of course, frequently called for the prosecution yeah. and imprisonment he of his at political opponents. I know, it was his slogan while he was in an office. Anyway, that's the sort of stuff he, he said. And uh, he may have some chickens coming home to roost. We will see. So, yeah, things are getting hot in the Trump organization. And I got to say, frankly, I'm loving it. Yeah. Every minute of it. You know, and it's interesting. It's all very, very Shakespearean. But I don't think Shakespeare could, could ever have come up with this. <sighs> it's kind of amazing. What? Yeah. Uh, so I am loving it, but I'm having... I'm loving less uh, the bad faith obfuscation and obstruction that Republicans are now throwing in front of Democrats in Congress where things should actually be getting done to clean up this uh, mess of the last four years uh, and to, uh, you know, keep Joe Biden's quite bold build back better agenda from being able to move forward at all. So is it time finally now to end the so-called negotiations with Republicans who made it quite clear over the past week that they are negotiating only in bad faith with Democrats? Adam Green of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee joins us to explain if it is time for Dems to cut bait with their attempts to work with Republicans in Congress and how progressives can push the administration. And yes, one guy named Joe Manchin forward right now to do the right thing before their uh, chances to bring real progressive change come crashing down in advance of next year's midterm elections. That is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Yes, please. Go from here. I want the world to tell me, please. Where do we go? 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Where do we go from here? Good question. On our previous Bradcast, we detailed the incredibly bad faith negotiating tactics by Republican leadership in both the House and Senate when it came to the resolution to create an independent, evenly partisan, balanced 9-11 style commission to examine the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection. A hard-fought deal had been struck after long negotiations between the two top-ranking officials on the House Homeland Security Committee, Democratic Chair Benny Thompson and ranking Republican John Katko, who House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had deputized to conduct the negotiations on behalf of congressional Republicans. They struck a deal where they each got the main things that they wanted. Republicans got an evenly divided commission where both sides would have to agree on subpoenas. Democrats got a commission that focused only on the January 6th insurrection, as opposed to a broader look at other protests against systemic racism and police violence last year as Republicans had sought. They each gave some and they each got some. And they struck a good faith negotiation, a good faith agreement after the negotiations. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, during the vote to create the commission in the House on Wednesday, released a February letter from GOP House Leader Kevin McCarthy, in which he asked for an even split of Democrats and Republican commissioners. He asked for equal subpoena power and no predetermined findings or conclusions listed in the legislation. The bipartisan legislation accommodated all three of those requests, with Pelosi then adding, quote, Leader McCarthy won't take yes for an answer. But of course he won't. As uh, McCarthy, after the deal was struck, he came out in opposition to it. So did the minority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, underscoring the fact that the Republican Party was never actually negotiating in good faith to start with. It was a con. Congressman Katko was thrown under the bus by his own party leadership, which never had any intention, clearly, of allowing a commission to move forward that would make McCarthy look bad, that would make Trump look bad, and, and likely many other Republicans who participated in, encouraged, or made excuses for the deadly riot in January. Republicans were not negotiating in good faith. It was a con, and it took months of wasted negotiation time to get to the point that the con became clear to everyone. But it is a game we have seen before. Recall in 2009 and 2010, for example, Republicans pretended to participate for months in negotiations for the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, winning many concessions from Democrats along the way, only for zero Republicans in either the House or the Senate to cast a vote in favor of the landmark health care reform bill that gave access to medical care to tens of millions of Americans who did not have it before. And now the scam continues, this time on Joe Biden's $2.25 trillion infrastructure proposal known as the American Jobs Plan and his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan proposal, which focuses on human infrastructure like child care, paid family leave, free daycare and community college tuition. 
As Politico reports this week, liberal Democrats are now speaking out at an awkward time as Biden's cabinet officials held their latest talks with Senate Republicans. But many of them have already moved on from the White House's efforts at bipartisanship. These Democrats say they're worried that by cutting a deal with the GOP on roads and bridges, they risk losing out on a generational opportunity to expand paid family leave and child tax credits and invest in green energy. Asked if the Biden administration should keep talking to Republicans about 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 a bipartisan infrastructure deal. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat of New York, replied, quote, absolutely not because we might lose our coalition for human infrastructure. Instead, she's, quote, 100 percent in favor of pushing through a multi-trillion dollar package using the blunt partisan mechanism of budget reconciliation, which allows a straight up or down majority vote to pass such things. She said, I do not think that the White House should relegate recovery to the judgment of Mitch McConnell because he will not function In good faith, she said, in my opinion, absolutely correctly. House progressives sent their own warning shot Tuesday to Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, arguing in a letter that Democrats should pursue a multi-trillion dollar mega bill sweeping Biden's priorities together into, quote, a single ambitious package combining physical and social investments hand in hand, they wrote. In the strongest sign yet that a growing number of liberals are done with trying to cut an infrastructure deal with Republicans that costs 800 billion at most and kicks other priorities down the road. We should just move on without them, said Congressman Ruben Gallego, a Democrat from Arizona, one of roughly 60 House progressives who signed the letter dismissing the GOP's 800 billion dollar plan as a counting gimmick rather than a serious proposal. Congressman Mark Pocan, Democrat of Wisconsin, another senior progressive, called the GOP's latest counteroffer, quote, ridiculous. It was if Tuesday was any indication, Biden and Republicans are still miles away from a deal. Politico notes at the moment, however, liberals preference to leave the GOP behind is limited by their own party's narrow majorities. Senate Democrats don't quite have the votes to move forward with their own unilateral approach the way they did in March with the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island, said one gargantuan reconciliation bill, quote, would be quicker and easier, but we don't seem to have the votes for it, he said. In the House, liberals say they fully expect Pelosi and Schumer will eventually have to ditch the negotiating table to craft a broader package without the GOP. Liberal groups, meanwhile, are making clear that they want their party to turn on the big, weighty economic issues of the day away from the Republicans. Ezra Levin, a co-founder of Indivisible, said the best case scenario is that Biden's party gets, quote, a few votes, a few GOP votes for things that the Democrats could have just passed on their own. Worst case scenario, he says, the GOP successfully wastes enough time to scuttle the whole effort. The only two scenarios for Democrats are to go big or get nothing, said Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, 
a million-member grassroots organization which works at the local, state, and federal levels to advocate for economic populist priorities like the expansion of Social Security, debt-free college, Wall Street reform, Medicare for all. The group, whose website is boldprogressives.org, describes itself as, quote, the Elizabeth Warren wing of American politics. And I'm delighted to say its co-founder, Adam Green, joins us now. Welcome to the broadcast, Adam. Longtime fan of you and your group and your work. And it is frankly insane that I don't think we've ever had you on the show until now. So welcome to it, sir. <laughs> Great to be here, and long-time follower and fan of your work, too, so thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. You're kind. Uh, it, it feels like, uh, as I said, that we have seen this bad movie before, uh, Adam. Uh, Republicans waste a lot of time pretending to negotiate. Democrats entertain the negotiation because I really do believe, honestly, that they'd like to work in a bipartisan fashion, but... The whole thing is a scam, a bad faith scam, it seems to me, as we saw on the January 6th commission and, of course, on Obamacare 10 years ago, the last time Democrats had control of the White House and both chambers of Congress. It's like kabuki theater. It feels like a scam. Am I wrong, Adam Green? Uh, big picture, you're, you're right. I, I would you know, put ourselves out there as an organization that is both willing to primary incumbent Democrats or criticize Democrats, mm -hmm. while also working, you know, in the trenches with <laughs> Democrats to get big things across the finish line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that perspective, I think that there's kind of two genres of working with Republicans. One uh, that harkens back to the Obama era, where they really thought Republicans <laughs> were potentially willing to deal with them and wasted a year and a quarter you know, negotiating with them before passing Obamacare and, you know, mm -hmm. basically waste a lot of time that led to a, la a lack of results by the 2010 elections and lack of results meant low motivation for voters to turn out and vote or vote Democrat. In this case, I think we have a little bit of a different scenario where I think most people understand the game. And the game here is there are one or two uh, Senate Democrats with that old mindset who mm -hmm. genuinely believe Republicans will deal in good faith. Everybody else is pretty much ready to just get this done, mm -hmm. but has to kind of play ball for a couple months to make abundantly clear that these Republicans don't come in good faith. And I can't think of a, a better high-watermark example of the one that you just outlined mm -hmm. with the Republicans you know, negotiating a January 6th commission, having it pretty much all their demands met, yeah. and then the Republican leaders coming out against it. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that we're nearing the time when even the Joe Manchins of the world realize that they did their mm. best, but too bad. It's time to go it alone with Democratic votes and oh. score big for the American people. Well, yeah, we will get to Joe Manchin in a second. But uh, it feels like this, you know, this sort of, as I said, performative theater in order to to sort of preempt the similarly bad faith claims from corporate media who, you know, tend to carry the water for the right as they do with the, you know, that Democrats are unwilling to be bipartisan if they had moved forward on their own. So. It feels like, do they have to go through these motions, even if it ends up getting them nowhere ultimately and actually undermines their own agenda because it either weakens what they're doing or it just eats into so much time that they ultimately can't pass all the stuff that they might otherwise pass if they just went on their own in the first place? Yeah, I think you're asking good questions. And, you know, I don't think that they have to go through the motions in order to get fair play in mm -hmm. the media. Again, I think there has been a pleasant uptick in the Jake Tappers of the world willing to call out an actual lie, <laughs> right. whereas they wouldn't have five, ten years ago. 
But again, the, the performance isn't for the media as much as for the Joe Mansions of the world to make them feel mm. at ease that, you know, we tried our best, we tried to operate in good faith, and boy, this looks like they won't meet us, you know, anywhere close to in the ballpark of where we need to be. It's, That's basically what happened with the American Rescue Plan, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Biden took a meeting with Susan Collins and nine other Republican senators. If you looked at the list, it had some pretty right-wing people. Jerry Moran from Kansas, really? Mm-hmm. He's going to be a bipartisan vote? No. Right. But, you know, the fact, but what that did was functionally, uh, you know, smoke out their low-ball demands. Like, mm-hmm. they wanted to come in at a third of what Joe Biden was proposing, and it, and it was just so clear they weren't even in the same ballpark that eventually Joe Manchin went, went along. So, again, I think most of this is performative, yes, but for Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema's benefit, um, you know, there might be some tactical things around the edges that we can do to improve things. For instance, you know, why not schedule a series of votes in the Senate that just make clear over and over again there are 50 votes, or as Ezra Levin said, 50 plus a couple Republican votes for a bunch of super uh, popular things, but not 60 votes. You know, DACA, uh-huh. uh, the Joe Manchin, Pat Toomey background check, for guns bill mm-hmm. and you know I, I would put at the front of the pack now the january 6th commission let's smoke them out and just remind joe manchin over and over again that these people do not deal in in good faith and therefore we need to you know put a hole in the filibuster interesting it's interesting that we have to uh, watch these motions and you're suggesting they're they're really more for joe manchin than anyone else not for the media not for the public not necessarily for the republicans but for a democrat joe manchin but as i said I'll get to him in a moment. Now, I, I want to say that uh, Biden, uh, at least in my opinion, has been both more progressive than many had assumed he would be. And where he hasn't been, uh, he has sort of shown himself willing to adjust to Democrats and progressives d- uh, d- demands on things like refugees or, you know, not lowering the cap for uh, individual emergency pandemic checks uh, this week on Israel, at least a little bit. Obama, President Obama used to quote FDR, you know, telling the left to, uh, quote, make me do it. Well, the left tried uh, under Obama, but he didn't seem to listen all that much. Biden does seem to listen, at least so far, as far as I can tell. But do you agree with that in that general theory? Yeah, I think that general theory is correct. Um, and I would, you know, add a couple supporting details there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think during the campaign, um, Joe Biden was was transformed by the COVID crisis, and you know, he uh, I believe tripled his uh, climate change, mm-hmm. you know, financial investment between the primary and general, which mm-hmm. doesn't normally happen. I think that was partly due to progressives, you know, building the infrastructure and building the intellectual arguments over the years. But I think Joe Biden genu- genuinely tried to rise to this national crisis we're in, and that is reflected in many of the things that are being seen as progressive victories now. Like, basically, progressives had been teeing up the solutions for years, and sadly a crisis came that just made abundantly clear how much those were needed. Mm. And Joe Biden, who wanted to do what was needed, you know, pretty much uh, took off the shelf a lot of progressive proposals. So, you know, that's one element I think at play. The second thing, and I can't underscore this enough, as someone who was, you know, screaming, emailing, you know, saying during the Obama years that bipartisanship needs to mean bipartisanship on Main Street, not bipartisanship in the corridors of power in D.C., Joe Biden has adopted our definition. And that is what empowered him to say during the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion that, you know, he, he proposed and stuck to and didn't water down, he said that it's possible to have bipartisanship in America without any any Republican votes mm-hmm. in D.C. 
And that's a game changer. Yeah. Because what it does is it removes all the leverage from Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, back in the day, Paul Ryan, if it had been applied then. The second we say that bipartisanship means we need Republicans in D.C. to shake hands with us, uh, means that they can move the goalposts over and over again. That's exactly what they did during Obama. So I'm very hopeful that if we stay true to this definition of bipartisanship, we can get big, progressive, popular things across the finish line, even if there's no Republican votes. There are Republican voters who support it. Adam Green is hopeful. That's good news. Uh, with all of that said, you know, Democrats and, and progressive Democrats in this case, as as you alluded, have, you know, <clears throat> a very big problem that I really don't see how they plan to solve. Uh, you're suggesting that a lot of this is is meant to solve this problem. The problem, in short, is named Joe Manchin. There are other names for it at times, like Kirsten Cinema. But, you know, where, where Chuck Schumer has been saying for months that uh, failure is not an option when it came to things, uh, you know, the, the Democrats' big omnibus election and campaign finance bill, the For the People Act, H.R. Uh, 1, it's now called S. 1 in the Senate. You know, with Manchin refusing to agree to move it and refusing at this point to reform the filibuster, which would also be needed to move it through on a majority vote. It does seem to me that failure is the only option at this point. Is is this something that, you know, you can get Manchin to maybe come over to pass something under reconciliation like the uh, the, the infrastructure uh, plan, the American uh, Families Plan and so forth? <clears throat> but these uh, bills, like for the People Act and the Pro Act for the unions and so forth, that can't be passed under reconciliation. It's got to be passed under regular order. And I don't know how you pick up 10 Republicans for any of those priorities. Do you see any way forward or is, in fact, failure an option on those things, as Chuck Schumer said otherwise? Uh, no, there's, there's absolutely a path forward and we need to reform the filibuster. Um, yeah, but so you have to go through Joe. Case. You have to go through me, Joe Manchin me, to do it. <laughs> let, let me make the case. Let okay. Case. So, step one is to recognize what happened during the American Rescue Plan, one point nine trillion dollars, which we passed into law, because mm-hmm. we're about to do a rinse and repeat of the exact same game plan. Joe Manchin said he wanted bipartisanship; that he wouldn't do it without bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. There were Republican negotiations. It was very clear that they were lowballing and not operating in good faith. At the end of the day, he came around and went with Democrats. Mm-hmm. Right. The statements that he said two months before the vote were his true position at the time, but also changed as it was very clear that that was not going to work. So how do we do that here? One thing it's worth noting is that there are a number of people who have voiced potential skepticism about puncturing the filibuster, but also have started coming out saying that we might, it might need to happen anyway. So to give you two recent examples, Angus King, independent from Maine, mm-hmm. uh, is probably one of the people that Joe Manchin considers by his side and being skeptical of performing the filibuster. Mm-hmm. He had not been in the Washington Post just a couple weeks ago, where he said, look, I, I'm one of the ones who's been arguing to keep the filibuster, but, quote, if forced to choose between a Senate rule and democracy itself, mm-hmm. I know where I will come down. Right. Quote. John Tester, in a lesser-known interview with the National Review of all places, he said, quote, I came here to get things accomplished, and if people are willing to work together, I'm willing to work with them, and we'll get some stuff accomplished. I think the filibuster serves an important purpose, but I also think that if there's a, snow, a stonewalling that goes on, mm-hmm. it doesn't leave me a lot of choice, unquote. And I think that that is an increasingly prevailing view in the caucus, and probably Joe Manchin will be the last one to say it out loud, but it basically allows it to be intellectually consistent 
for them to say, you know, I want the filibuster, but you leave me no choice, right? And then, and here's the here's the final point. Yeah. Um, there are things that we can do to expedite him getting there. And as an activist, as an organizer, I, I really want to say this to your your audience because mm-hmm. I, I it sickens me when people like read a random Joe Manchin statement and then demobilize. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. So first, anybody who's in West Virginia, you know, we're working with a lot of groups there need to stay active. So when he's on the verge of making the right decision later, mm-hmm. he knows that there is strong support for the For the People Act or the PRO Act or anything else. So just get active locally. But I would also extend that to anybody who's in a moderate Republican or a moderate Democratic state. If your senator is Mark Warner or Tim Kaine or Angus King, or if you live in New Hampshire, if mm-hmm. you live in Nevada, it is so important that you pick up the phone now or, you know, first thing Monday morning mm-hmm. and say, I want you to support a robust For the People Act, Right. Uh, or I want you to support the PRO Act, and I need you to be willing to get rid of the filibuster. It might seem like, oh, that's a drop in the, in the bucket, but mm-hmm. no, we actually hear from these offices when we're behind on phone calls, and we hear, when we, hear, we hear when we're uh, ahead of phone calls, and this is the time for them to be able to say internally, you know what, the people are with us, let's make this decision. And the final thing I would say, and this is something that the Republicans are doing for us and need to do more, mm-hmm. is they're saying the quiet part out loud, and it totally helps us. So on May 4th, Chuck Grassley was at a constituent meeting where he said about Joe Manchin, we think we've got him nailed down. That was his quote, right? Mm. Now, as Joe Manchin deals with these supposedly moderate Republicans, mm. Chuck Grassley, you'll recall, was the main Republican stringing Obama along in Obamacare, mm. right? Yep. And then it's like, you know what? Here's what he tells people behind closed doors. We think we've got him nailed down. <laughs> and the very next day was when Mitch McConnell said, 100% of my focus is defeating the Biden agenda, Right. So the more that these Republicans show their cards to Joe Manchin, I think, you know, and the more that public support in his state and elsewhere is showing that there's only one option, I think we're kind of showing him the door. That is my case. I think it's a rinse and repeat of the last thing, and there's things that we can do together and that Republicans are doing to help us to speed up the timeline. I will change my uh, assessment from an optimistic Adam Green to a wildly optimistic Adam Green. Not that I don't think you're, uh, you're right and not that I'm not rooting for you. But, boy, it's difficult to see. I'm hoping Manchin is seeing those things that you're suggesting, that he's seeing uh, what Grassley is saying about him and so forth. You're confident uh, that he well, is. I'm, well, I'm, I, I know 100% with 100% certainty that <laughs> he saw that. Okay. Um, the, the thing I would say, you know, I, I don't want to – I'm 100% confident that there was a path forward. I'm mm-hmm. not guaranteeing success. Right. I'll just recall one conversation I had with a very astute person before the Georgia races where we were thinking about, you know, our organization went all in on those. We raised over $700,000 for the candidates and some groups on the ground. There were a lot of others that went all in. And I was talking to someone about the wisdom of that. You know, I was like, you know, maybe there's a 30% chance that we win both of them. Yeah. And they were like, you know, maybe it's only 10% chance. But they were like, you know what? Even if there's only a 10% chance that mm-hmm. we're successful, the game-changing nature of winning them is so high yeah. that we, we might as well be all in anyway. There you and go. I would say that's the same here. I, I don't know that it will be. like Certain things have to go correctly mm-hmm. for this to be work out. All Democratic standards have to stay healthy, for instance. Yes, <laughs> right? yes that please. That's a major kink in the plan. Right. But there is a path forward. There, there is not, you know, I, I think there, you know, just recent months evidence has shown that Joe Manchin is willing to change his mind. And our, our challenge is to expedite that as quickly as possible. And when it comes to uh, things, Adam Green, like you know, the exp- even the, the the larger ticket items, the expansion of the Supreme Court to to counter the GOP's packed and stolen majority, there, do do is it is it the same path for progressives to just keep talking to your House members, your senators, let them know how important this is because. 
you know, uh, we're looking at, you know, staring down the barrel at this point of potentially losing, um, uh, you know, the, the, they're going to, the Supreme Court will finally kill Roe v. Wade, not to mention the idea that the Democrats could very well lose their majorities next year in Congress and be able to do none of this. So, again, is the tactic the same to just pick up the phone and, and, and keep calling your lawmakers? Uh, yes and no. I'm not sure about that tactical part at the end. I, I would keep the focus right now on infrastructure and uh, the For the People Act, personally, mm-hmm. and you know, always include that I want you to be willing to get rid of the filibuster if Republicans leave you no choice. But I do think that procedurally the path is pretty much the same, and I will say that the, the most likely thing that I've heard in terms of how we reform the filibuster is we basically have a democracy exception, saying that if, you know, if it pertains to democracy, mm-hmm. it only needs 50 votes, mm-hmm. um, which would be very similar to the current um, executive nominee exception or Supreme Court or you know, courts as a whole exception that we have right now, mm-hmm. where you know, those, those appointments and nominations only need um, you know, 50 plus one vote. Mm-hmm. So you know, if the democracy exception happened, well, what else is democracy statehood for? Just probably, right? Yep. The other thing that that would expedite the timeline is, you know, sometimes you have to let people mess up. And I think the Supreme Court this past week, um, you know, if our chances were 5% of, of uh, being able to expand the court a week ago, they're probably 15 or 20% now. They've tripled or mm-hmm. quadrupled. And the more public anger there is, yeah, I think the, those chances keep going up. So honestly, I would probably take that activism to the street to make it make it more public facing as opposed to doing it behind the scenes to a mm-hmm. whatever staffer is taking uh, internal notes on how many calls they get. I think that the more public outrage there is about court decisions or even in this case the, the willingness to take a case, um, yep. the more fear there is and the more willingness there is to uh, expand the court. Uh-huh. And then with DC State, with DC State, the one thing I would say there is I was pessimistic about that for a while. And then I do think that the January 6th insurrection mm. uh, increases increased the chances of it becoming a reality. I, I don't think it's anywhere close to 50-50 yet. But I would say that, you know, if we had had D.C. statehood on January 6th, 2021, the National Guard would have been there in minutes, not hours. Mm. Yeah. If we had, you know, if we have two more mm. senators from D.C., if we had them today, uh, the individual health of any one senator and the individual safety of any one senator would not be as, you know, mission critical as it is today. So I think there's a couple new reasons to um, to be supportive of D.C. statehood in our current environment. And I think that case will just get bigger and bigger. Uh, I hope you're right. Uh, Adam Green, before I let you go, on your issues page at boldprogressives.org, you list a number of priorities for the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, uh, including the Green New, uh, Green New Deal, Medicare for All, Social Security Expansion, Debt-Free College, Wall Street Reform, Free and Open Internet, do you feel that the party establishment is 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 open to or moving in the direction of those various objectives? Or uh, right now, are they more you know long term objectives that you don't necessarily expect the party to move forward with right now? All right, I'm going to send this clip to our tech folks so that we can update our webpage. Um, right now, <laughs> we have two we have two top priorities: S one and passing the bill back better for trillion dollar agenda. Those answer the questions of can people vote and are they motivated to vote in 2022? Um, after the Build Back Better agenda is passed and S1 is passed or Full the People Act is passed, mm-hmm. then we can move on to some of the issues that you just mentioned, which are more nice to have progressive items as opposed to the absolute existential must have <laughs> passed right now items if we want to keep our democracy 
moving in the right direction. Gotcha. Glad I could help you update the website, which listeners can find at boldprogressives.org. Adam Green is the co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. They can be found on the Twitters at Bold Progressive, and Adam can be found there at Adam Green. Adam, really enjoyed talking to you today. Hope you'll uh, join us again in the future, and uh, good luck with all of your important work there. Absolutely. Thanks so much, and thanks for the great question. Talk to you soon. You bet. Okay, quick break, and Daz, we're going to end with a song today. Okay. Been trying to do this one for a week. Uh, That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Not only are the rich different from you and me, they're getting more different than ever. I'm not referring to mere millionaires, but to the billionaire bunch. In the past year, while ordinary Americans have lost jobs, businesses, and homes due to the pandemic economic crash, America's 664 billionaires have found themselves nearly 40% richer than before COVID. These fortunate few collectively added more than a trillion dollars in 2020 to their personal stashes of wealth. And practically all of them got so much richer by doing nothing. Their money made the extra money for them because corporate stock prices zoomed even as regular people lost income. Take a peek at the richest of these different ones, Jeff Bezos, the alpha geek of Amazon. He hauled in an additional $75 billion last year, roughly $37 million an hour. You could do a lot of good with such riches or you could splurge on yourself. Jeff splurged. He bought one of the largest sailing vessels ever built. More than one and a third football fields long, the super yacht cost the diminutive mega-billionaire some half-billion bucks. Plus, he'll pay some $60 million each year for operating expenses. Also, he had to buy a support yacht to sail along with his main boat. Why? Because the three sails on his 400-footer are so huge that a helicopter can't land on the deck, requiring an auxiliary yacht to provide a helipad. See, the rich really are different. Where to park our helicopter while at sea is a problem you and I don't have to face. This is Jim Hightower saying, According to mega-yacht sellers, the main draw of these ostentatious purchases is that they reinforce inequality, literally letting the rich float in leisure and luxury oceans apart from even having to see hoi polloi like us. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is brought to you by the Lowdown Happy Hour. Live streamed from the Chat and Chew Cafe. Details at HightowerLowdown.org. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself... Thank you. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. We'll be back soon. (laughs) Yes, that must mean we have another song from our old friend Randy Rainbow, who, which I wanted to get to uh, last week, but we've just been so busy for the past week, so we're going to do it now. I think it's still relevant, but even if it's not, I really enjoy it. I hope you will as well. And joining me now is a man who's been canceled more times than my subscription to Aaron Carter's OnlyFans page, Republican Senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley. Hey, girl. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. You know, I grew up in... Okay, uh, let's cut the sh-
You objected to the Electoral College certification. You voted no on an anti-Asian hate crimes bill. But perhaps what you're most hated for is fist pumping those violent Trump supporters on January 6th in a photo that went viral, making yours the most famous fist in the Senate, if you don't count Lindsey Graham. But that's another story. Well, thank you for that. Whatever. So I think what we're seeing now is an attempt by the left to lie about our motivations to lie about our actions in order to grab power. Calm down, Mr. Fister. They want to silence dissent. They want to silence me. And I tell you right now, I am not going to back down before a liberal mob. All the crackpot villains in the GOP only care to cover their behind. And since the last election caused an insurrection, they've lost their goddamn minds. With their far-fetched fairy tales and heartless schemes and their lack of dignity and poise, they blabber and spout and they all tend to shout, so I try to block out their noise. They want to shut down conservatives. They want to shut down Clang, clang, clang went Josh Hawley. Yap, yap, yap went Ted Cruz. Crap, crap, crap went McCarthy. Cause his party continued to lose. Flip, flop, flip went the flippers. Bitch, bitch, bitch went the face. Mitch, Mitch, Mitch went McConnell. As his neck tried to swallow his face. Not a fact they can produce. So they distract with burger bands and Dr. Seuss. They block relief their voters need. Their only beef is that Joe Biden might succeed. And so push, 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 push their puppets. Yuck, 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 go the dance. Goes Liz Cheney. Cause the party she knew turned anarchic askew and obscene Thanks to Bobert and Green They lost our trust, they sell their soul If only just to gain some power and control They have no shame, they have no shame Or decency, or decency And who the hell ever exists or on TV Creep, creep, creep went the creeper Grump, grump, grump went Randolph. Trump, Trump, Trump went Jim Jordan. They're so slimy, they make my skin crawl. Democrats are destroying this nation. Big dog. Duh, duh, duh went DeSantis. Bang, bang, bang went the feds. Clang, clang, clang went Josh Hawley. As their party implodes, gerrymanders, garrotes, and colludes. And Matt Gates sends out nudes. They'll continue to cheat and to spar and repeat all the garbage they say Till they all go to Gonna back down. Calm down, Mr. Fister. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Rainbow, the great Randy Rainbow. We will link to the video as ever, which is even funnier than the audio. Oh, yes. Gotta get out my thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer. Also to my guest today, Adam Green of boldprogressives.org, and to all of you for spending your day or night with us, at least a part of it. We are always grateful and always honored. If you missed any portion of today's program, Download it anytime for free at brandblog.com. 
And of course, my thanks to those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. You are the reason we are still here. You have no one to blame but yourself. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. They'll continue to cheat and to spar and repeat all the garbage they sell. Till they all go to hell.